Turn to the Gospel of John, John chapter 20. We're continuing our look at John chapter 20, and this chapter of John, as I told you last week, is John's record of the different responses the disciples of Jesus had to the resurrection. How did they respond? How did they react when they discovered, one, Jesus' corpse was no longer in the tomb? We saw that two weeks ago. How did Mary respond when Jesus revealed to her for the very first time he's alive? And how are the disciples we're going to look at today respond? I'm, I'm preaching a message I've entitled, Behind That Locked Door. Five years ago, uh, Amy and I went to Germany. You're, you sent us on a Reformation tour, and that tour was intended for us to see a historical landmarks and sites related to the Protestant Reformation of the early 1500s, and we went to a lot of those sites. This is one where the exact location where Martin Luther stood before the Roman Catholic Council and said, here I stand, I can do no other. And so we stood right there too. Uh, our tour began in Berlin, and of course in Berlin we saw evidences of the Reformation, but while in Berlin we also saw some landmarks related to the Cold War era of the 20th century. In 1949, after World War II uh, and the defeat of Nazi Germany, there came this reorganization of Europe and particularly a reorganization of Germany. Germany was essentially split in half. Uh, the east side of Germany was under the authority of the Soviet Union and the west side of Germany was under the authority and direction of the allies, the good guys of World War II. Uh, that line, that dividing line, went literally right through the middle of Berlin. And when Amy and I were in Berlin, we stood on the dividing line. Um, that's Checkpoint Charlie right there. And that's right, again, on the dividing line between east and west. Well, as the months from 1949 turned into years and years turned into decades, the contrast between East Germany and West Germany became incredibly distinct and stark. When we were there in 2018, you could literally see the buildings of East Germany that were built during the Cold War and the buildings of West Germany and the great difference and disparity just in the architectural form. The East Germans, very drab and gray and plain, and the West Germans built buildings that were very expressive and created. Well, what happened is over the, those decades, um, East Germans began to defect from East Germany to West Germany. And because there was such a great defection of East Germans, in fact, from 1949 to 1962, 2.5 million East Germans left for West Germany, uh, what did they decide to do? Build a wall. They built a wall. And the wall they built wasn't to keep immigrants out. It was to keep citizens in. We want to keep the people in East Germany. We don't want to allow them to leave. This is a picture I took at the, what's remaining of the Berlin Wall there in Berlin. And what you may not be able to tell there is that wall is filled with bullet holes. In fact, the buildings beside the Berlin Wall still have marks of bullet holes where soldiers who guarded the wall were instructed to shoot any would-be defectors. You see somebody trying to escape, shoot them and kill them. Well, there we also visited what's known as the Brandenburg Gate, and there the Brandenburg Gate, very famous landmark in Berlin. It's the location where President Ronald Reagan gave his famous speech 
in June of 1987. In that speech, he called out the Soviet president, Mikhail Gorbachev, and he said, what? Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And that was June of 1987. In November of 1987, the wall came tumbling down. Now, I want you to think for a minute. Can you imagine what life would have been like living in East Germany during the Cold War era under the oppressive regime of the Soviet Union? As you would hear of friends and loved ones who attempted to defect and were arrested or worse, executed on sight. How would you feel if you were in that situation and under that oppression? Well, if you can sense that iron fist rule of the Soviets, you're starting to get a sense of the anxiety the disciples were experiencing on the weekend of Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus is crucified, the leader of their liberation movement. He is sentenced to death by the evil, wicked, occupying force of the Roman Empire. The shepherd was struck, and so the sheep scattered. Now, sure, Peter and John had been to the grave early that morning, and they saw some things that were unexplainable. Uh, the, the body was not there anymore. The grave clothes were laying in order, but that could be explained away. Surely, they thought maybe the Jews came and stole the body to try to stop any funny business on behalf of the disciples. And Mary and other women saw Jesus, they said, alive. But we all know how women can have fanciful imaginations, right? So here they, I'm just kidding. So here they are locked in this room. And the last time most of them saw Jesus, he was bloodied, beaten, and bruised, hanging on a cross. How would you feel under the oppression of that occupying government. Well, here on this next section, we're looking at it, John 20, we're, we're gonna see how Jesus now appears and reveals himself to this group of disciples who are locked behind that locked door. Look with me in your Bibles in John 20. We're gonna read verses 19 through 23. This is the word of God. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Jesus shows up behind that locked door. Now, when we think of a locked door, we think of, you know, the doorknob with the little tab on it. We think of perhaps a deadbolt or maybe a sliding chain. That's not the kind of locks they had back then. When they had a locked door, it would literally be a bar over the door. They barred the door. And here are the disciples for fear in this locked room. And the room is locked. And John tells us that Jesus just appeared in the room. <laughs> he was just there. Now, there's different theories and ideas about how Jesus did that. I read a bunch of them this week. John MacArthur, that pastor out of California, he said that in Jesus' resurrection body, his new resurrection body had the capacity to walk through walls. He could rearrange the molecules of his body. That explains 
how he vanished um, or how he transmuted, if you will, through the grave clothes. His body just passed through them. And so he just passed through the wall and appeared. Another John, not John MacArthur, but John Calvin says it was miraculous that Jesus just miraculously opened the locked door and was inside. After all, we know in the book of Acts, Jesus and the power of God swings open locked prison doors. Now, whether John MacArthur or John Calvin's right, the Bible doesn't really say how he did it, but we know, according to John the Apostle, it was miraculous. Jesus appeared in a locked room and stood among him. Why? Why did Jesus appear in that locked room? Why did he go behind that locked door? What was his intention of showing up on that Sunday evening? I'm here to tell you, the intention Jesus had on that Sunday evening of appearing and being present in that room is the same intention Jesus has on being present today in this room. What is it? Well, there's four things I want us to consider from the passage about Jesus appearing behind that locked door. The first thing is this, when Jesus appears, he provides for us and he provides for them peace in the very midst of your fear. Jesus comes to them and friends, Jesus comes to us today to provide peace in your fear. Again, verse 19, on the evening of that day, that's Sunday, the first day of the week, the doors were locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. And Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Clearly, the reason they were huddled together in a locked room is because of fear. That's what John says. Absolute terror. Terror over what had happened. Fear over the future of this movement. Fear over what the same people who did this to Jesus could come find them and do it to them. However, Jesus got in the room. When he gets in the room, one of the things he does is he shows them his wounds. He shows them the scars, the, the res result of being stapled to a cross. He shows them the consequence of being impaled in the side with a sword. Jesus shows to them his wounds. Now, I thought about that this week, and I, I thought about why would he do that? Well, for one, I think he's doing it to convince the disciples it's really him, but he's also doing it to, to show them and to show us this is the cost of your forgiveness. By these wounds, you're healed. I thought about this reality this week, that Jesus' resurrected body, in his eternal resurrected state, still had marks of the wounds. And I thought, you know, I hope my eternal body and my resurrected state, I get rid of the, kind of the flaws and the wounds and the scars that I've developed over the last 54 years. Just this last week, I dropped a a log splitter on this finger. Can you see it? Blackened my fingernail. I've, uh, last year, I was splitting some boards on my table saw, and smart me, I ran this thumb right into the table saw blade. It's still numb on the end. I've got a big scar on my knee, whereas about a seven-year-old, I jumped on an upside-down aquarium. I never claimed to be the smartest <laughs> knife in the spoon drawer. So my scars are marks of my failures, my flaws, my mistakes, my errors in judgment. Why does Jesus still have scars? Because they're the marks of his glory. They're the marks of his victory over sin. They're the marks that show he has the credentials to sit on the throne of heaven forever. They're the glory of our salvation. 
And as he stands among them, he gives them a word. It's a familiar word. It's a word they've heard Jesus say many times. In fact, it's a word that's used in their culture dozens of times a day. Shalom. For the Hebrew people, shalom is kind of like hello, goodbye, ciao, shalom. Jesus comes in and he says this familiar word, shalom. Peace be with you. Now, when he says it here, friends, it's not just a cordial greeting. He is saying it and speaking it as a word of blessing. Peace be upon you. They'd heard Jesus say the word peace with significant authority before in the midst of their fears. You remember the episode when they were on the sea? These very experienced fishermen and all the nautical experience they had, and they are rife with fear. What's Jesus doing? He's asleep on a pillow in the stern of the boat. And what does the Bible say? The Bible says that they came to him in Mark chapter 4, but he was in the stern asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Jesus comes again to them in the midst of their overwhelming fear, and he says to them, peace. In the midst of fear, peace, I'm here. Peace, it's going to be okay. Peace, I'm in control. Peace, I am God. Have you ever noticed that even in Paul's letters, he always begins his letters by giving a blessing, a word of peace to the churches he's writing to. Grace and peace to you. Mercy, grace, and peace. Peace is what's pronounced at Christmas as the angels come and announce the birth. Peace is announced. And so when Jesus says peace, again, it's not just a cordial greeting. It's not just a howdy. It's just not a 1960s hippie. Peace, dude. That's not what he's doing. He is speaking a word of blessing. I'm here, and when my presence is here, peace is here. Peace be upon you. And here's the deal. The peace of Christ, the peace he offers, it is irreducibly linked and tied to his work. How do I know that? Because two times leading up to what happened this weekend, just four days ago in the narrative, on Thursday, Jesus declares to them, peace. Notice a couple of instances. In John 14, again, this would be on Thursday. He's crucified on Friday. On Thursday, he tells them, peace, I leave with you. My peace, I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. The peace Christ provides is peace for a troubled heart. The peace Christ offers is peace in the midst of fear. And then later, that same afternoon on Thursday, Jesus says this in chapter 16. He said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. In other words, it's fearful being out there in the world. It's a fearful thing to go to South Asia in a very dark location and be proclaimers of the gospel of Jesus. But Jesus says, peace. I've overcome everything you're going to encounter. I've conquered everything that is there. But he also wants us to know that his presence is with us. Because above that, 
and beneath that and around that and before that and after that is his presence. And the presence of Jesus always brings peace. And this peace is indispensably connected to his resurrection. He shows him his wounds. I can give you peace because I was dead and now I'm alive. In fact, look at this next slide. If there's no resurrected Jesus, there's no peace. But if you know the resurrected Jesus, then, friend, you will know peace. If you don't feel like you have peace in your life right now, my question to you would be, do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? So here's what Jesus does. He comes behind that locked door, and he comes behind that locked door to let them and to let us know that we can have peace even in the midst of fear. Here's the second thing that we can have purpose from our Father. You and I can have purpose from the Father. Now, last week we noticed there was a milestone shift in the relational dynamic that Jesus identifies in his conversation with Mary Magdalene. In his conversation with Mary Magdalene, for the very first time in the Gospel of John, he refers to his disciples, he refers to his followers, not just as friends, but he refers to them as brothers. That's never been the case. He's never called them brothers. But the relational status between Jesus and the disciples has now changed post-resurrection. He also told Mary Magdalene, you go tell my brothers of my father and their father. That is the first time out of 120 occurrences in the Gospel of John where Jesus refers to God as father that he says he's anybody else's father but his father. He says now, post-resurrection, The father is also their father. This is profound. And now he's coming in the power and the authority and dependence upon the father to give purpose to these disciples. And what's the purpose? He says, as the father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. You may have heard people raise this question before. What gives Christians the right to try to impose their religion on other people? Who do you think you are trying to proselytize other faiths? I mean, you think you can go and try to convince people that the way they've believed and the way they lived their whole life is wrong and you're right? How arrogant, how prideful. Why would you do such a thing? It's a very simple answer of why we would do such a thing. Because Jesus told us to. Jesus told us to. And he didn't just tell us to, he commanded us to, and he commissioned us to go and proclaim the message of salvation through Jesus alone to sinners everywhere. This is the great commission of the church as it's come to be known. We considered the great commission briefly last week when we considered Mary Magdalene and Jesus' appearance to her. Jesus told her those two words that are synonymous for the great commission, go and tell. And I told you she goed and she towed. She went and she announced, right? She told them she saw the resurrected Christ. And now here in this section, we see a repetition of the Great Commission again, the sending of the disciples with the message of Jesus. He says, as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. Now you may look at this and This is John's record of the Great Commission, this one verse, this one sentence. You may say, well, that's a lot shorter 
than the Great Commission I'm familiar with. I mean, the Great Commission we looked at last week also in Matthew 28. It's like three or four verses long. It's a lot of words. And here John's record is, is very short. Further, John's record of the Great Commission happens on Sunday of the resurrection. Well, the Great Commission in Matthew happens much later. What's going on here? John, is, is this a contradiction in the Bible? Let me ask you this. If the primary objective and the marching orders of the church is to go and tell, do you think Jesus would have said it more than once? Of course he would. He would have said it every day he was with them. And oh, by the way, here's your marching orders. Go and tell. By the way, here's what you're supposed to be doing, taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. In fact, let's just rehearse all the occasions in the gospels and even in the book of Acts where this great commission is repeated using different verbiage, but it's still the same marching orders. In Mark chapter 16, Mark records it like this. And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Now I grew up reading the King James Version, which says proclaim the gospel to all creatures. And so you know what I did as a pig farmer and a young aspiring preacher? I preached to them pigs all the time, man, I'm telling you. Now, you look at the, uh, Luke's record of it. It goes like this. He gives it to the Emmaus Road disciples. Then he opened the, their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And then again, the, the Great Commission is repeated in the book of Acts just before Jesus ascends to heaven. And here Jesus says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Again, easy answer to why there's all these different verbiage of the Great Commission is because he kept repeating it to them. And like any good teacher, he will say the same thing in different ways to get his message across. Like a great instructor, he will cement truths in his pupils' minds. See what I did there? I repeated something in a different way. <laughs> so hopefully it's a minute in your mind. That's what Jesus is doing here. Now here in John's gospel, he gives a qualifier. He gives a qualifier for this being sent. He says, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Now when I studied that this week, I thought, okay, Jesus is sending us as the Father sent him. I tried to figure out what does that look like? What does that mean? How was Jesus sent that equates to how we are sent by Jesus? Well, I know some things that this does not mean. This cannot mean that as the Father sent the Son as God, eternal God, to take on and incarnate human flesh, that can't be the way he's sending us because we're not God and we already have human flesh. As the Father sent the Son, he sent the Son to be tempted in every way without sin so that he could be the perfect sacrifice. Well, I've already blown that one. I sinned today already. Uh, the father sent the son to offer his own body as a substitute to die on the cross for the sins of the world. Can we do that? No. So obviously that's not how the father is sending us. So how is the father sending us if he's sending us in the same way that he sent the son? Well, I came around with two words that I think sum it up. The words are obedience and dependence. Obedience and dependence. You might want to write those two words down. Jesus was sent by the Father in obedience to the Father, and throughout his ministry, we see dependence upon the Father. 
He obeyed what the Father commanded, and he depended upon the Father's resource. We see this in a lot of places, particularly in John's gospel. In John 5.18, Jesus declares uh, what John declares. It's his commentary. By this, he was declaring he's God. He's deity. Then notice what verse 19 says. Truly, truly, I say to you, this is Jesus talking, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. So the same way the Father sent the Son in dependence, in obedience to the commands, so also Jesus is sending us in obedience to the commands. We have been sent. We are being sent to our neighbors and to the nations to proclaim the message of forgiveness that comes through Jesus alone. Think about the Old Testament prophet Jonah. Most of you know that story or that account. It's not just a fable or story. It's a real event. Jonah was commanded by God to go to an evil city, the most wicked city on the planet, the city of Nineveh, and go proclaim God to them. And what did Jonah do at that commission? He went in the opposite direction. He got on a boat, and there on that boat, you know the story, a storm kicked up. Finally, Jonah admitted, yeah, this storm's my fault. They tossed him over the side, and that seems like that's going to be the end of Jonah. You're going to die and drown in the bottom of the ocean. But what does God do? God provides in his mercy and his grace a great fish, perhaps a whale, we don't know. And this great fish swallowed Jonah up, and it was there in the belly of that fish that Jonah repented for disobeying the command of God. The fish vomits him on the shore, and the exact same command in Jonah 1 verse 2 comes in Jonah chapter 3. Go to that city, Nineveh, and proclaim it. And what did he do? He went. Well, what's the difference? He went and obeyed because he had recognized the grace of God in his own life. You saved me, God. You rescued me from certain destruction and death. And it was from that vantage point and from that reservoir of God's salvation in his own life, he was obedient to go proclaim salvation to that wicked city. And the same will be true for us. As we consider how great our salvation is, as we consider how deep and dark and wicked our hearts truly are, we will be willing and obedient and dependent to proclaim this gospel to everyone who needs it. The question is how? How can we do it? How could they do it? Well, that leads to the third thing Jesus communicates, power for your future. The power that is necessary to obey Christ's commission, to walk in obedience to his command, in dependence upon his presence, comes from the presence of the Holy Spirit. We know John intends for us to make this connection of the mission, the purpose, the commission to the power of the Spirit because of what he says at the beginning of verse 22. And when he had said this, what's the this? I'm sending you. And when he had said this, I'm sending you, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Friends, that's why I just prayed for Brian and Stephanie, for the Holy Spirit to work in power. It is impossible to be effective in mission apart from the Holy Spirit, whether that's in South Asia or whether that's in South Chattanooga. It's impossible. And Jesus comes and he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, 
I'm going to admit to you, this is a confusing verse. What is Jesus doing here? Did he breathe on them and fill them with the Spirit in this instant? Well, I don't think so. Because that happens 40 days later, 49 days later on Pentecost Sunday. So what's happening here? What is he doing? I will tell you that this verse is used as a proof text for those who see multiple fillings of the Spirit. That you get a little bit of the Spirit here, and then you get a little bit of the Spirit there, and you get a full filling over here. And so this verse is used as a proof text for that concept. But I've told you before regarding that concept, we know that can't be true because the Spirit is not a force. The Spirit is a person. When you get a person, you either get all of them or none of them. When you receive the Holy Spirit, Christian, you got all the Spirit there is to get because he's a person. He's not a force or an energy, okay? Secondly, we know that this uh, breathing here is not the, the anointing or the baptism of the Spirit because of what happens we'll see next week in the very next passage, Lord willing. What happens in the very next passage? Eight days later, John marks the calendar. Eight days from here, so that's Monday week from Easter Sunday. Where are they? They're huddled up, locked in a room again. (laughs) They're hiding behind a locked door for fear of what's going to happen to them. I want you to note the contrast between that response to Jesus saying you're going to receive the Holy Spirit to what happens 49 days later on the day of Pentecost. They're in an upper room on the day of Pentecost. It may have been this very same room. The Holy Spirit descends upon those 120 believers gathered there in power. Tongues of fire came upon them. What did they do next? Did they stay huddled in fear in the locked room? No, they broke out into Jerusalem. Peter begins to boldly proclaim the gospel publicly. Thousands are coming to faith in Jesus, so much so that the, uh, the religious leaders arrest Peter and John. They stand before the very Sanhedrin, the very high court that convicted Jesus to die, and here's what Peter says to them. You bunch of loony tunes murdered the king of glory. You numbskulls killed the Messiah. The stone that the builders rejected, guess what? God's going to make him the cornerstone for the very house of God. And they beat him. How do you mark the difference between Peter and John then and Peter and John eight days later where they're still huddled in fear in a locked room? One word, spirit. The Holy Spirit on Pentecost came upon them in power. So, what's happening here in John chapter 20 when Jesus breathes? Well, I will just give a brief explanation for you uh, nerd theological people uh, just to try to understand what's happening here. Um, D.A. Carson in his commentary um, remarks that the words on them is not in the original language in the Greek of the Bible. So it literally would say, he breathed and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. So it's not a breathing on you. Secondly, the word there for breathe is not a usual word that's used for breathing in the New Testament. It's the Greek word emphysao. You hear an English word in that? Emphysema. So it's literally a deep inhaling, exhaling. And here's my, you know, 25 cent explanation for what Jesus is doing here. He's deeply, profoundly breathing out the Holy Spirit is coming. Here's the promise of the Holy Spirit. Why do I think that? Because just like four days earlier, Jesus promised them peace. Four days earlier, on that same Thursday, in the Upper Room Discourse, Jesus promised them the Holy Spirit. Notice how he said it. 
in John 14, 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, watch this, for he dwells with you and will be in you. See the difference? At this time, when Jesus was still with the disciples, well, the Spirit was with them. But on Pentecost Sunday, the Spirit will not just be with them, but will be what? In them. And here Jesus is reiterating that promise that there will be the Holy Spirit, the enabling, empowering work of the Holy Spirit, not just with you, but in you. And here's what happens in 49 days on Pentecost Sunday. They are fundamentally different people. They are fundamentally different people. Just an aside, I just had this thought, and maybe this will help someone. On several occasions, whenever someone has come to me as a pastor and said, I just don't know if I'm saved. I just don't know if I'm saved. Anybody ever struggled with that before? Here's what I'll say. Tell me about a time when you know like you know, the Holy Spirit has worked in you for gospel purposes. If they say, that's never happened, well, we got a problem. But if they say, well, a time working in vacation Bible school with those fifth graders, I really sense the Lord speaking through me. To I said, that's the evidence of the Holy Spirit. He is in you. And we don't base our salvation on experience. We base our salvation on the fact of the gospel Friend, if the Holy Spirit is working in you, that's him. He's doing the work. So Jesus breathes out deeply this promise of the Holy Spirit, which really leads to the fourth thing I want us to see from Jesus' words here. Number four, he imparts to them the promise of forgiveness. There's a promise of your forgiveness. Another difficult verse, thank you, Jesus. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, before I attempt in the next, hopefully, five minutes to explain what this verse does and does not mean, let me just tell you, first of all, fundamentally, the essence of Christ's salvation is forgiveness of sin. That's fundamentally what salvation is. It's forgiveness of sin. We see this throughout the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22 says this, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. In Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Colossians 1, 13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The essential Work of salvation is having your sins forgiven, having your guilt removed. That's what it means to be saved. And so back to verse 23 of our focal text, Jesus says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Whoa. What is this? There's a question of what kind of authority is Jesus imparting here to his disciples? Is he actually saying to those gathered disciples in that locked room that you have the capacity and now the authority that I'm giving you to grant unconditional forgiveness to sinners or withhold unconditional forgiveness to sinners? Is that what Jesus is saying here? 
Well, this is how the Roman Catholic Church interprets this verse. The Roman Catholic Church believes that this verse gives proof to their uh, special class of clerics, of clergy. Clergy is not in the Bible, by the way. We're all believers priests, but they believe that priests, the priesthood of the Roman Catholic Church, has been given the authority to absolve other human beings of their sins. So, for instance, if you are a Roman Catholic and you feel some guilt, where do you go? Confession, right? You go see the priest. You go to the little booth. He slides the thing back. I don't know. I've never been in there. That's just from movies. I've seen it. But they slide the thing back, and they be, this uh, sinner begins to confess his sins. And what will the priest do? The priest will begin to give you some things you've got to do or got to say. You've got to say so many Hail Marys. You've got to say so many Our Fathers. And, oh, by the way, go do this good deed in penance. And when you do that, come back and see me. Come back and see him. Okay, I said the Our Fathers. I said the Hail Marys. I did the little good deed. And here's what the priest, who would say it in good Latin, would say. Te absolvo. What does that mean? I absolve you. Does any human being have the authority to absolve somebody of their sins? The answer is no. In fact, Jesus wanted to make this point. If you remember, it's recorded in two gospel accounts. The, um, the paralytic who was carried to Jesus on the mat, and when they lowered the paralytic down to Jesus, instead of saying, rise and walk, seeing their faith, what did he say? Son, your sins are forgiven. What did all the religious leaders say? Oh, did you hear what Jesus said? That's blasphemy. Nobody can forgive sins but God alone. And Jesus was like, that's the point. I'm God. No one has the authority to absolve people of their guilt before God, but God. So that's not what Jesus is saying here. He's not giving us the authority to do that. So that's not what it means. What does it mean? This, I believe, is what we would, could refer to as a declarative authority. What is that? If somebody comes to you and says, I believe the gospel, I've trusted in Jesus. I've repented of my rule and reign and surrendered to him. You have the declarative authority to say to that person, your sins are forgiven. Not because of what you've done or what you can do, but you can say it declaratively because of the truth of the Bible. They trust the gospel. That's what we do every week. In fact, in just a moment, at the conclusion of our service, I'm going to introduce to you some uh, member candidates. These are individuals that I've met with one-on-one, -on -one, had conversations with, I've heard their testimony of faith. They've shared with me how they understand the gospel and how they trust in Jesus. I can't declare to them, I, I mean, I can, but that they are forgiven of their sin. But here's what's gonna happen Wednesday. On Wednesday at our members meeting, our congregation will come together. Our elders will recommend that they be members. I don't make anybody a member. Our elders don't make anybody a member. The congregation makes them, uh, votes them to be a member. And here's what you're saying, church, listen. When you say, Yes, we hear their testimony. Yes, they can be a member of this church. You are declaring with authority, your sins are forgiven you. Your sins are forgiven you. That's what we've been called to do. In fact, look at this next slide. The authority Christ has given his church to proclaim forgiveness is not an absolving authority, but it is a declarative authority. We can say, on the authority of Jesus, you trust the gospel, your sins are forgiven. 
And friends, this is the message we proclaim. This is the word we speak. This is the gospel we've been commissioned to declare to the world. And it's basically this. Through the forgiveness of sins, you can have peace with God. Peace with God. I asked you earlier, do you have peace with God? Are you at peace today? Is there peace in your soul? You won't have the peace of God until first you have peace with God. How do you have peace with God? Believe in Jesus. Repent of your self-rule and submit to the rule of Christ in your life. Trust in his death and his burial and his resurrection. And Jesus will come to you through his spirit and proclaim, peace be with you. That leads to my last thought. Jesus has called us to his movement to be on mission, proclaiming his message. Peace be with you.